Hello, I'm Howard Phillips Lovecraft, and despite all my warning, you're listening to Microphones of Madness. Hey, welcome to Microphones of Madness. It is Saturday evening, not Saturday night, because we have a very special guest, Mike Mason from Chaosium. And we also have Kim, as always, and as unfortunately, always. Uh, Rodney's not around, so you have to deal with me being host. We're rudderless. So, uh, Mike, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Not a problem. So, you are officially the line editor for Call of Cthulhu. Yep, that's, that's it. Why don't you tell us what that entails, for those of us who don't know? Sure. Um, it's basically, um, I tend to call it looking after the Call of Cthulhu game, basically. Um, uh, what my job is, is um, writing Call of Cthulhu material, editing Call of Cthulhu material, um, commissioning new work, working with authors, um, sometimes doing some art commissioning or art direction, uh, but um, I tend to do less of that these days and just focus on the writing. Um, so um, I either write manuscripts or edit manuscripts and uh, get them ready for um, you know get them ready for a production basically, um, and then uh, work work with um, Nick in layout and um, develop the book into the book, and then um, and then run lots of games and tell people why they should want to play it, that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, main, mainly it's uh, sitting in front of a computer all day, editing. That's that's the main job. What a romantic job. <laughs> yeah. It so, sounds like you're really the mastermind behind it. Well, well I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, the, it's working with a lot of really great writers who have a lot of great ideas and uh, helping to kind of Shape those into uh, into you know products and books that um, people want to want to read and play. It's all your fault. All my fault, generally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Normally, that's it. Yeah, my fault. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. You know who to talk to if you have a complaint. Right here. Just have to find him. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are in the middle of the big launch of seventy. It is finally happening. People are getting their physical books. I mean, it's been out for for almost a year, right? Sure, yeah, out in PDF form, and now now the actual physical books are actually uh, arriving in people's hands with the uh, the backers from the original Kickstarter, and then uh, then going out to people who've pre-ordered it, and then then out into general um, distribution and retail. Which is fantastic because I mean, people have been waiting with bated breath. For these to come. Sure. Now, we'll just jump right into it. Um, I, I've read the set, well, two of the seventy books, the uh, two core books. What prompted the the big switch? Because up until this point, the different editions have kind of been just growing, just adding on different elements from different game scenarios and stuff, spells and but not significantly changing the mechanics of the game. 
and with this, you've actually significantly changed the mechanics of the game. Yeah. Um, okay, that's two questions, really. Sorry. So, and that's okay. I'm just thinking out in my head. Um, you've answered the first one yourself. Um, the game's over, you know, over 30 years old, um, and since through first through sixth edition, um, what has happened is the rules have remained pretty much the same with a few modifications and tweaks here and there. Um, and as each edition has come, more material has been poured into the rulebook, um, and it's been bolted into the rulebook. It hasn't been um, rewritten. It hasn't been the material hasn't been developed into the rulebook. It's been literally bolted into the rulebook. So the right. book has grown and grown and grown. So um, you have this situation where you have the core rules as they've always been in certain sections, but you've had these additional spot rules or uh, further advice about rules or information that aren't always coherent with the the core rules, as in they're not necessarily in the same part of the book anymore. You could look at combat and have some rules, some rules for combat, but then you have some spot rules somewhere else in the book, and then you have some other rules somewhere else in the book. And so it had a little disjointed in my opinion. Is that sounding better now? Say something? Yeah, is that sounding okay? It's a little bit better. It's not as echoey. Shall I? Let me take my um, headphone. That was it. Yeah. That was it. Is yeah. that better? That's it. Okay. Yeah. So the rules became disjointed. Well, not disjointed. The, the rule book became a little bit more jumbled. It, it's not. You know, it wasn't hard to find everything. But um, what I felt it needed was to be, you know, incorporate these things together and rewrite the rule book. So it was um, more accessible, effectively. Um, so you, if you rewrite the book and um, effectively incorporate all these things in a logical narrative through the book, um, it makes it easy to find things. It makes it easier to understand, particularly if you're coming new to the game. Um, so that was one side of it in terms of um, uh, trying to present the book in a more user-friendly way than, than perhaps it had become. Um, and the um, and as part of that, uh, as that process of developing the rules, it was over the years, um, Call of Cthulhu. Uh, there are some imponderables in the rules in Call of Cthulhu, such as get a group of people and ask them how does the grapple rule work in Call of Cthulhu, and no one can agree, because there are forum pages, pages and pages of forum people asking the question how does how do I, how do the grapple rules work. Just to interrupt you, yeah. the grapple rules are pretty unclear in almost every game. Sure. <laughs> it's not just I, I mean, I'm just, just clarifying into Cthulhu. Um, so clearly that's an issue. Clearly, clearly there's a rule there. Even if the actual germ of the rule is fine, the, the, uh, the information about the rule is unclear and therefore is causing people to take it in quite different ways. Um, so uh, there was um, over the over the thirty plus years, people had, had developed little styles and little um, homebrew kind of uh, tweaks to the rules. Many of which were the same across the board. And um, so, really, when we came to uh, myself and Paul Fricker, when we came to write um, seventh edition, um, we wanted to incorporate some of those 
tweaks that we'd been using and we'd seen other people using. We wanted to kind of clarify some of the rules, things like Grapple. We wanted to make the game generally more accessible um, and uh, wanted to make the rule book um, flow better in terms of, you know, uh, kind of writing it again from the ground up effectively. Um, keeping it Call of Cthulhu, keeping it the same game, but obviously trying to look at... I mean, there's <laughs> game development has come on some way since Call of Cthulhu was first written. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of, uh, you know, um, new, not necessarily new, but, uh, you know, things have come out in games over the years that have informed us in how we play. And um, we felt that some of those things would be useful in Call of Cthulhu. Um, so, um, you know, the, the whole argument of Call of Cthulhu Oh, it, it it often fails because somebody misses a roll and um and there and there's game stalls, which I don't think is a problem with the rules at all. I think that's bad scenario design. That's that's very that's poor scenario design. Bad scenario However, design or poor keeping. Could, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. That there, there there are you know it, it, depending on the situation, but at the end of the day, um, but a lot of the. A lot of the old, really old scenarios were, were you know, uh, this this wasn't, this hadn't become a problem, and they were a little bit more kind of railroady and a little bit more kind of, you know, um, along those lines. Um, but um, what we wanted to do was present, we wanted to give keepers a toolkit, so if they found themselves, you know, in the middle of a game where they suddenly, you know, hadn't realised they'd gone down a dead end and they didn't know how to get out of it. We wanted to give the keeper some tools that they could get out of things. Um, you know, help the keeper, you know, at the end of the day. And again, you know, Call of Cthulhu, um, there aren't... There's a small number of role-playing games that are gateway games, as in games that people who've never role-played before come into through certain games. D&D's a classic one. Um... Call of Cthulhu is another one. Call of Cthulhu is, is a game that actually many people who never roleplay before, that's their first game they try. So we wanted Yeah. We wanted we wanted the rule book to be accessible for people, not only experienced players, um, and give them um, all the tools that they needed, but we wanted to make the rule book accessible for new people coming into the coming into the game to make it as easy as possible for them to Get get into the game and and to understand it and to not ask questions like why why is this got why are these combat rules here then why do I have to turn ten pages and find some more combat rules it doesn't make sense so make it all flow together um, so I mean that that's kind of the nutshell of it you know we we saw there was some uh, rules things we thought we could we could um, streamline improve um, the overall kind of um, narrative of the book the flow of the book. We could see that that could be improved, um, and they were they were the kind of the core things really in that sense. Um, and it, and you know there hadn't been a new edition out for over ten years, um, and, it, and it felt I don't know it just felt a little a certain at the edges a little bit of creaky at the edges, and we thought we could probably you know polish those edges and um, smooth things out. Right on. You, you answered all my questions now. Well, actually, um, it's funny because my son is 10, and he asked me when we were going to play Call of Cthulhu. And I said, I'll tell you what, 
there is a scenario uh, called Alone Against the Flames, which is like a choose-your-own-adventure, but you, you're playing Call of Cthulhu. You roll yeah. dice, you create a character. Let's try that, and if you like that, then we could go from there. Sure, and that, that's a perfect, um, a perfect scenario to start with, because you can either... Play it solo, you know, or you can, you know, if uh, you can actually run it for a person, um, and um, it works either way, and it's a, you know, it's a great introduction because it's nice, nicely self-contained, and it's a, a bit of fun. So yeah. Now, what were some <laughs> of the challenges that you came across when you were deciding what to change, what what needed done, what how to do it, like moving uh, from sixth to seventh? What were some of the challenges there? I think that the main challenge was keeping it Call of Cthulhu um, because um, it's very easy to write game rules. It's very easy to make game rules complex really quickly. You see it all the time on forums where people have gone like, oh, I've, I've done, this is my take on how to do this thing in the game because I perceive that in my group I'd like, I'd like more rules for this thing uh, or I'd like the rules to work in this way. So I've created my own new rules for this and you see it all the time over forums, and that's cool. You know, people do what they want in their own groups, but it's a it's a characteristic of, of the general fact that making rules up is 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 pretty easy. Making good rules up is is, is more hard, um, and so it's, it's very easy to overcomplicate things very quickly and not realise you're doing, doing it. it. Um, so, so that's, that's go again. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna my, my um, thing. thing. Now we can't hear you. Can't hear you. Sorry, Mike. Mike is experiencing technical difficulties. So, okay, so he's going to drop out and he's going to come back in a minute. I think he just yeah. So right. while we're doing that, <laughs> uh, we'll have a little soft shoot for you. Kim's going to sing and dance. No, I'm not. No, she's not. Um, See, I did pick up a piano keyboard today. Oh, that's cool. So one of these days I'll be playing for you. Ah. <laughs> Gonna have a little jam session. Yeah. And Mike's back in. So you got your guitar. So. And we can hear him. Aha. Uh -huh. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. I'm taking my headphones off because I'm pretty sure the connection's gone in the headphones, which is what is causing the problem. So okay. I'll just go. Uh, so you were talking that. about Ooh. crazy. Um, so yeah, you were asking about the challenges about doing the doing edition. Um, yeah, no, our number one um, task was ensuring that it remained Color Cthulhu. And the reason why I went off and talked about creating new rules is that we could go and create new rules and suddenly find ourselves with a another game horror game that actually bears little resemblance to Call of Cthulhu very easily. But that's not what we wanted to do. We we you know we had. Um, <laughs> a, you know, deep love for the game and uh, played it for many, many years um, and we wanted it still to be the game that we loved. We didn't want to change the game. We wanted to improve it where, where we thought it could be improved. Um, so um, that that was really the key challenge because we always had to keep coming back to say, does this still feel like Call of Cthulhu? Because in the, um, the early stages um, Paul did a lot of, kind of the initial rules development um, and Paul had a lot of um, a lot of ideas, um, and some were quite far out and far removed from what Seventh Edition is now. 
but as a as a game designer, sometimes you need to kind of start with the the big picture and kind of like put in crazy rules and see how they work because they um, you hone them down or you, you you throw them out or you kind of go yeah we like what that does but it doesn't quite work with Call of Cthulhu so you kind of develop it and hone it down to what the what it's you know what it's trying to do um, so uh, the pushing role in seventh edition is a new introduction um, it isn't that new in terms of there's a lot a lot of keepers were using something similar to pushing a role um, over the years you know somebody failed a role they said well I'll just take another role. Um, we wanted to give it a meaning in Call of Cthulhu, and hence why you, know, you can only push once, uh, and if you fail a push roll, the consequences are, are much worse than just failing a roll. Um, <laughs> when um, when Paul first was developing that rule, you could push unlimited numbers of times. You could just keep pushing. You could just keep re-rolling the dice. Um, and, of course, that, that, that kind of creates its own problems. Because when, when do you stop? You know, like, why, why, you yeah, bother, right. why, why bother doing it almost? Because you get to the point where you're just going to keep re-rolling until you get it. Um, so it has to have a context, and and the context was that it's Call of Cthulhu. You know, the, the lives of the of the investigators are are um, hard put upon. So using that rule um, allows you to actually um, impose further grief on your players, which is kind of pretty much what Call of Cthulhu tends to be about. Um, it's supposed to be challenging. It's supposed to be dire. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it kind of echoes echoes a downward spiral of sanity, the downward spiral of hit points, the downward spiral of knowledge in terms of um, you know the the more the more you uh, learn of the the true uh, realities of existence, the 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 the, <laughs> the the lesser your role in the universe becomes. So it kind of mirrors mirrors that. Um, but that, that, they were the kind of key challenges, um, uh, and once, once you know, once we had some crazy rules, uh, playtesting them ourselves, and talk, you know, we spent a lot of time going back and forth, and, and saying that that rule is not going to work, or this rule is really cool, with it's definitely going to fit really well, um, and um, just testing things out, and um, and having to keep coming back and saying, is this rule has this rule suddenly become too complex? Is this why, why have we made it this complex? Let's take it back down to what we started with, because actually, that's that's a sweet spot for it. That's 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 what works really well, and it's simple to understand, it's simple to implement, and it doesn't alter the game in any significant way. It actually, what we wanted to do was streamline things and enhance the game rather than change the game. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I actually, I like what you've done to combat. It's a lot more. It's a lot. I won't say realistic because it's role-playing combat, but it's you can't effectively dodge a gunshot anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the the big thing for us about combat was that it was um, it was a you go, I go system. So I would go, then you would go, and I would go, and 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 countless times. I mean, pretty much everyone's experienced this sort of situation where. Everyone just keeps missing everyone. Everyone's having this massive fist fight, and they're really going for it, and everyone just keeps missing everyone. Well, that's how Kim's character died five minutes after she started. Yeah, he got shot. And, and uh, fight, no one, no one can hit each other. 
and so it starts and, and it kind of starts to take it into a kind of almost a slightly ridiculous realm because it's kind of like well and, and also combats would go on and on and on and nothing would happen um, and then you know and all of a sudden one thing would happen and then suddenly it would be over and so there wasn't a lot of drama really um, which combat should be dramatic should be exciting should be dangerous right. and so just changing it from the you go I go to an opposed role just meant that things were more likely to happen every time um, and um, which is as you say a little bit more realistic in fact because you know things you know some two people are trying to hit each other they're gonna hit each other um, and it's just a case of you know who who effectively wins as it were so um, the opposed roles kind of mirror, mirror that kind of um, you know, reality to the degree that it's a reality, yeah. And then uh, you revamp the sanity rules a little, and the, the thing I like about that, and you're talking about bringing more modern um, aspects into the game, in character creation, you, you, you have an emphasis on the background of the characters, which is, didn't happen before. You can either have them or not have them. It wasn't an integral part of the game, but now... Your background actually is used, I, I want to say, as an anchor yep. for your recovery. Yeah. I mean, we wanted to kind of, like, because um, some people would never, would, wouldn't write up any backstory for their character. Other people would write pages and pages and pages. And um, we wanted to try and, try and find that middle ground where try and make try and make the character more than just a number, of, a series of numbers and try and try and help help the players to kind of think about their characters in a, in a broader way, which would help the keeper think about their characters in terms of how they fit into the, the games and the scenarios and the campaign, and um, and also provide the keeper with some tools that they can, that they again, can, can inflict dire things on the players with. Right, um, exactly. Exploit the background. Exploit the backgrounds. It's whilst, also, yeah, whilst also giving the player the, the ability to use their background to help them through um, spending time with part of their backstory to actually regain sanity. Um, so it kind of like, you know, it had both sides of the coin. It kind of, if you did the backstory, if you wrote some bits on the back of your sheet, there was a mechanical benefit for you because you could potentially gain sanity back from them. Equally, because it's written on there, the keeper could corrupt some of those if you go insane, if you take a major wound, or a situation warrants in the game, and you can corrupt them. But um, you know, the, the the game works in the fact that you know, in the in the break between um, scenarios or the break between you know, scenarios in the campaign, we have kind of the the investigative development phase, which is all you know. We just kind of codified the bit where players can roll their skill improvements and experience and things like that. So right. we built in that kind of backstory phase into there so at that point they could spend time with their connections to regain sanity but they can also write in new backstories because they can write in stuff that's that's come from the experience of the game so they could write in you know a new contact or some new new person information that's important to them just as a keeper can corrupt during the game they could spend time after that has happened to try and regain it so they kind of uncorrupt it um, if you know if um, if that's appropriate, so um, it was just trying to you know build in building some mechanics that were good for both player and keeper into that kind of 
it to help the player create a 3D character. Really, that that was the kind of the uh, the notion behind it. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I think you did a great job with that. Mm -hmm. um, so let let's get out of the nuts and bolts of it because we can talk about that all all night and. I'm sure you're bored of that. <laughs> well, I'm sure that every interview you go on, we talk, oh, the pushing rules, spending luck. And I want to know more about how uh, 7E, what direction it's going. I know um, you guys as a company have been focused on this, on 7E, no. and then the new uh, RuneQuest is getting a revamp too. Yeah. Um, what about some of the other properties that you guys have, like BRP? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously my main focus is Cthulhu, but... Right. Um, Jeff, short question, just short. Yeah, no, Jeff is working on um, RuneQuest, uh, the new edition of RuneQuest, uh, but we are, but we still are planning to do, um, as you would call it, BRP books as well. Okay. Uh, but um, what what we're tending to look at is um, books that are because BRP is a very you know at the very base level it's a generic system that can mm -hmm. be used for any any style of role playing um, so where we're probably going to get going in the future with that is actually developing books that are effectively standalone um, you know so you'll have a setting uh, you know a game concept with all the all the appropriate rules in that book so it's oh, a standalone cool. Rule book with a setting and scenarios and things like that. Oh, that's um, super cool. And so you know, you only have to pick up that book if you want to. You know, I, I'm 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 not saying we're making this game, but if, if you want to play a game with, you know, super super powered vampires uh, driving mechs, that's a kind of quite a niche game, and um, it's a little bit out there, left field. And so BRP would probably be the the thing we do for if if we were to ever make that game. Not that we are. Vampires like, <laughs> that, that was the great... That's the great thing about your company, about Chaosium, that has, for as long as I've been playing role-playing games, you had this the basic same system. Yet, each game had their little differences. Yes. But essentially, it was the same game. And if something was missing from, say... Call of Cthulhu, just because we're talking about it. Not that there's anything missing from it. And you needed survival mechanics for a hostile environment. Well, those rules are right in VRP. So sure. you can go to basic role-playing, look up those rules, and just port it on over, not skip a step, not miss a beat, sure. and yeah. make that part of your game. Sure, yeah, I mean, and that's how all these books work together in that fact because they all they've all got the root of BRP as you say so if you if you find something you want to go in a certain way with your Call of Cthulhu game that isn't that is it's kind of takes you beyond Call of Cthulhu in, into almost something else you can look around the other kind of BRP supplement scenarios or rule books and kind of you know use the information there and dovetail it as you want so it, it, if you're the kind of keeper that likes to tinker or, and likes to create your own settings that are slightly you know out of the mainstream, then BRP, the different kind of variety of BRP books, you can draw upon them to kind of create that setting you want and tinker, tinker away really, because um, it's a it's a it's a nice simple system to to uh, and it's got a lot of um, stretch in it. So um, 
it allows you to kind of do that kind of you know bolting things in and uh, change, changing things a little bit here and there. I just wanted to touch on that because the way 7e is set up now, it's very easy to convert um, to six back and forth. Yeah. Um, what is it like a two-page blurb in the back of the book? Yeah, there's a there's a little appendix in the back of the rule book which just gives you some advice on on the key things that are you know that have either got new terms or you know right. slightly changed or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not huge, so you can no, still huge, you, you can, can do, still do this. You can you can run any old adventure with seventh uh, edition and do no proprietary work for it. You can just run it on the fly. I do it all the time. Um, you know, as long as you as long as you feel comfortable with the seventh edition rules, once you've kind of got that in your head. Pick up any Call of Cthulhu scenario and run it from the right. book without having to kind of rework stats and all that kind of stuff. That you don't you don't need to do any of that because um, you don't you know you don't use a lot of those in the actual scenario. So um, that's true. And now, which brings me to uh, this uh, horror on the Orient Express is was basically the first big thing to come out of 70. It might have actually been out before the actual rules were out. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 we kind of had the rules written, but they weren't kind of in, uh, they were in, kind of in production, but they hadn't been released, so uh, hence why you have a little bit of um, a rules advice in 7th, in Point Express that kind of talks about using, you know, there's a kind of a, a little guide on using 7th edition, you know, some kind of base rules there for you to kind of understand what we mean with certain expressions in the uh, Orient Express book. Right. Now, that Orient Express is a classic. Um, rumor has it that Masks is going to get a similar treatment. Um, I, I think, you know, down the line, um, what, you know, what the plan is, is to look at some of the... Um, Kind of classic and well-loved um, scenarios and campaigns, and um, refresh them where necessary um, down the line. Um, so uh, you know, at some point, uh, you know, I imagine we would do a, a kind of a refresh to seventh edition of masks um, and um, things we'll like be, beyond the Ma beyond the mountains of madness, that kind of thing. We'll be playing masks again after we're done with this. Once it comes out again, we'll play it again in seven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's another four years. <laughs> it's also obviously, I think those campaigns have been out a long, long time, and a lot of people have played them. Um, so it does give us an opportunity to not dramatically change them necessarily, um, but to look to how again to how to enhance them, how to learn from you know twenty odd years of people playing Masks of Nadadeb. What lessons can we learn from that? To, and build into it, build into a revised edition because there's obviously things that maybe never really quite worked, or people just never play that bit, or it doesn't, you know, people don't like that bit. Um, the representation of some of the characters maybe, maybe could do with tweaking to. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that, that was our big thing about masks: is it you could it dates itself with just the insensitivity, we'll say. Yeah, I, I think it's, some, of the, some of these books were written a long time ago, and um, you know, I think the modern sensibilities could be brought to bear uh, that would um, you know help them and improve upon them. Couldn't agree more. Um, 
Why, why do you think that uh, Call of Cthulhu remains popular? It's it's never gone away. No. Um, it's... Um, okay. It, it, one of the reasons why it's a gateway game for people who've never role-played before is because they can play very easily identifiable people in the game. They can play the policeman, they can play the librarian, they can play the secretary, they can play the business guy, or wh whatever it is, yeah, forever. They're normal people, and you right, play right. a normal person. So it's, it's really easy to identify. You know, you just say, well, what? You know, uh, you know, do you want to be someone a bit like Sherlock Holmes? Do you want to be someone like Mar you know, someone Marlowe or, or whatever? And um, it's, um, so it's very, I find it, it's a very accessible game. People understand it straight away because you haven't got to explain this, the, it's set on the world of Aaron Arg and, uh, and the, the, it's got the elves and the dwarves and, 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 and what are elves and, and what are dwarves and all this kind of thing. You haven't got to explain any of that. You just say it's set, it's set in New York or in Boston or, or wherever. Um, yeah, and um, <coughs> and you can set and you can set it now, so you don't you don't have to have to explain any historical thing, or you can say, yeah, it's set in the nineteen twenties, and there's a kind of um, and people kind of understand what that means. You can say it's set in the nineteen twenties, and people get what that means. Um, so it's very accessible, and it speaks to a kind of um, excuse me. <coughs> The um, and the game is ultimately about um, personal heroism. Uh, it's about individuals uh, and and you know coming together as a group to to make a difference in some way, however insignificant or small that might be, or uh, however our pyrrhic it may be. Their victory, they're trying to do something to stop mm -hmm. the darkness. You know, for want of a better term, um, and um, and that again, that's very easy to identify because people want to do the right thing. People want to, you know, to be the hero in that sense. And it's about, but it's about, you know, you're not wearing a cape, you've not got super abilities, you're just a normal person. You haven't played with Rodney yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and again, again, it's really easy to identify because you know, you're you're small little role in this big, big, big plan against this massive, you know, incomprehensible kind of force, it's that kind of, you know, you, you, you take that stand and, uh, and everyone can kind of understand that and identify and think that's cool, um, whilst at the same time, um, you know, you've got this kind of, this horror backdrop and everyone gets horror films, everyone understands that kind of concept and it's not for everyone, you know, it's not for everyone, but uh, and in the main, you know, um, horror films are pretty successful and um, people enjoy a little bit of a scare and um, it plays to that as well. So it's, at the end of the day, you put all those things together and it's just fun and, and I think, you know, um, it plays to some classic, you know, human kind of, the human condition and, and emotions that we, you know, we like, we like doing these kind of things. We enjoy doing them, and 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 it plays to all that. And you haven't got to learn any. There's no baggage with it. You haven't got to learn anything. You've just got to learn that you need to roll these two dice, and if this number is below that number, you do what you want to do. 
and that's kind of all you need to know. It's not any much. It's not really harder than that. Sure. Do, do you think that uh, the resurgence of Lovecraft in popular culture is helping to fuel the people playing the game? I think it, yeah, it's a kind of a, a circle thing, isn't it? I mean, because back in the day when Call of Cthulhu first came out in the eight early eighties. You know, a lot of people will attribute um, the kind of rise in popularity of, of Lovecraft stories um, and, and Cthulhu as an icon back to the role-playing game because a lot of people found um, Lovecraft stories through the role-playing game. Obviously not completely, but it certainly had a significant role in that. And so you now you've got to this point where the game's been out there 30 years, uh, Lovecraft himself and, and his work has become much more um, uh, aware in the popular culture with films and, and other tie-ins. Um, and so you kind of get this feedback loop where some people are still coming into Call of Cthulhu not knowing anything and never having read a Lovecraft story and then maybe going on to find a, you know, to read some of his stuff or, or to read you know, the ton of new authors who are writing really cool stories. Um, and equally, you get people who are coming in through the fiction or having seen you know, uh, a film or, or whatever it may be, and going like, hey, that, is, that, is that game about this film that I watched? Or this, is this, is this related to these books I've been, I've been reading by, such and such? Um, and you go, yeah, they all, they all kind of tie in. And, and so it's, it's a massive feedback loop, and it just kind of feeds, keeps feeding in from both ends, if you see what I mean. So um, I think... Um, and it, and it just it just just seems to kind of keep bubbling away into the kind of the mainstream, just starting to kind of lap into the mainstream. And I think as soon as um, somebody like Del Toro makes beyond you know makes the Mountains of Madness or something like that, it will tip over. Perhaps I don't know, but um, you know, there's also there's always that part of me, isn't there? There's that, all that part of a kind of geek geekness that that we have a really cool thing that we all know about, but we don't want to share it with everyone because if everyone gets <laughs> it, we'll never get me no good anymore. But you're, um, you're going to get blackmailed now for that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it doesn't sit. That doesn't seem to hurt it at all. It, it, the more the more that um, Lovecraftian style stories um, kind of enter the kind of public consciousness. The, the more you know, the the more people want to play Call of Cthulhu, which can't be a bad thing. No, not at all. Um, I, I, I personally, since I started playing it, I have found it to be a really great outlet for uh, for my mental health. It's for like I, I can do things in Call of Cthulhu that I can't do in the real world, like like beat up a bad guy or kill a civilian and get away with it. <laughs> or burn down a, a cult village or whatever. Sure. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, it's, it's, it plays... I mean, this is not just Call of Cthulhu, but it's all role-playing games. Play yeah. to that that human need of telling mm -hmm. stories. Telling stories mm -hmm. and communicating and gathering together uh, and, and kind of sharing an experience, you know, and, mm -hmm. and which, as you say, allows you to kind of effectively, you know... Um, externalize and, 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 you know, just play out kind of things you would never, you know, you wouldn't want to do in real life, but it, but it allows right. you to, kind of, you know, play, play them out just, just in a, in a similar way to reading a, reading a story, um, you're, you're kind of a, you know, you're an observer on the story, but sometimes you can get quite into a book and, um, and you, although you aren't directing the, the narrative, you, 
you kind of become invested in it. Um, and role plays is, is exactly that with a with a plus, you know, with a bit more because you actually are narrating it. You are actually um, directing the directing the flow of the action. So it kind of really plays to that kind of thing to, to allow you to uh, to kind of externalise, you know, uh, fantasise and, and have fun really. And as you say, do 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 cool, heroic, crazy, dangerous, wacky stuff in terms of uh, mm -hmm. the characters you portray in the game. Good stuff. Good stuff. And uh, now, right now, you guys are in the middle of the uh, a time to harvest event, yeah. which, which we've been participating in to some degree of success. <laughs> <laughs> um, how has this been received in the gaming community? I know this is the first attempt at something organized like this by Chaosium, right? Yeah, yeah. This this is the kind of first. Um, um, you know, extended campaign with you know multiple parts happening over over multiple months um, around the world. Um, uh, I mean, the the, the take-up has been uh, staggeringly brilliant. Um, we've got over a you know a thousand, you know about thousand two hundred people in the Cult of Chaos now. Um, not necessarily, not necessarily all of them are you know necessarily running this campaign now, um, but they all have have access to it. So it is being run. Around and what's really cool is everyone's running it around the world. You've got guys in America and England and Germany and France and and and, and elsewhere, and um, and that's really cool. And um, what I kind of like about <laughs> one of the things I kind of like about it is the fact that because it's a serialized campaign and the keeper is only getting one you know one scenario a month, and you know, they play that month and then they get the next scenario read it up and then play it with the group. Uh, and continue on through. Um, the players, obviously, when they play Call of Cthulhu, don't know what's going to come next. You know, they might have an idea, but they don't know what is going to happen next. Right. Um, and normally, the keeper does because they've, you know, they've sat there and they've read all the book back to front. They've made their notes and they know exactly how the plot's going to go. And they, you know, they understand, you know, who the villains are and when the monsters are going to come in and what the players really need to do to kind of save the day. Um, and that's the norm for you know most role-playing games. Um, so this is kind of cool because the keeper is in the same position as the players. Um, they don't know really what's going to happen next. So it's actually the only time a keeper gets to run this campaign and and kind of kind of almost sit a little bit from the player's point of view because they don't know where it's going. So it's a kind of um, serialized kind of novel approach to it in that sense, which I think is kind of cool. But then again, I. I'm not. I'm not experiencing it because I do know what's all in it because I've read the whole thing. So you you wrote, you wrote it. You helped write it. I helped write it. Yeah. I, well, the, the main the main work was done by uh, Brian Sammons and, and Glyn Barras um, with Charles uh, Charles as well, and uh, and then uh, I kind of uh, topped and tailed it and uh, added a few extras in and uh, whatnot. But um, yeah, yeah. But the guys did a good job on uh, pulling together a cool cool campaign. But yeah, it's been it's been seems to have been well received. We're getting lots of reports of people posting up their games and things going in different directions depending on the group. And uh, yeah, we have cool. ours posted. So and you you're, you're of course you know, um, <laughs> um, uh, videoing the games, aren't you? So I mean, people can yep. come in and listen to your um, your playthrough. 
Yep. And uh, laugh and cry. That's appropriate. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in Germany, there's hopefully somebody is playing a uh, a man named Trump, <laughs> who's a neo or a pre-Nazi. <laughs> Sorry. I imagine there are going to be a lot of keepers who, when they get their next installment, read it through and go, "Oh crap, we killed that guy off. Here he is again." <laughs> there is, what there is a there is a voice in the chat to sort of try and say, look, please try and keep this person alive, or please be aware. <laughs> I need to be in this vicinity and not, you know, not halfway around the world uh, for the next start of the cat, the next start of the uh, scenario. But um, we might have broken. Aware, you know, but we know, we know that <laughs> we know that players are players, and they will do unpredictable things. Off the wall so, things, yes. So we try and. Built in some advice here and there for if, if things work to go a little crazy, but most most of the time the, the scenarios are very fairly uh, pretty self-contained, so there's not a lot of um, there's a lot there's not a lot of potential problems if players do some crazy stuff in one, um, uh, you know. But um, ultimately, like any campaign in any role-playing game, the keeper's got to take on a certain level of responsibility in terms of ensuring that to just smooth out some of the Rough edges if the players break things, but um, <laughs> but uh, it, should, it, should, it should survive. Hopefully, uh, even some um, even you know players break a lot. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the man who accused us of of breaking the game, and he did it in a in a kind way. He wasn't upset at all. Um, he actually is also has a question for you, Mike. Sure. And I will quote: His name is Scott Morgan. And he asks, how can Keepers and other fans of Call of Cthulhu publish their own adventures? Can we submit to Chaosium, or is there a license for third-party publishing Call of Cthulhu scenarios? Well, ultimately it comes down to, uh, do you want to make money from publishing your scenario? Or, or, or you know, it's ultimately, are you trying to intend to make profit from publishing this scenario? Or do you just want to share your work, your share your scenario with the with the you know the gaming community? And um, so, if you just want to share your work with the gaming community, and you've got a cool scenario, you think it's really cool, you play it for your group, and you've kind of written it up a little bit, and you want to share it online, then we've got really no problem with that. that that's great. You know, that's feeding into the whole kind of you know um, um, bag of stuff that people can you know, contribute and, and build upon, and that's cool. And you know, we think that's really cool. Um, if, on the other hand, you know you want to kind of make money off it, then that's a di that's a different proposition. That's not actually just sharing the scenario. You're, you're looking to actually create a business from it, and obviously um, that's where you know um, you know licensing and things like that happen, and uh, you know it becomes more complicated because it's more complicated. Um, but in terms of people who just want to write and who are thinking about in terms of trying to become published, which is again a third thing, um, then obviously um, it comes down to, um, yeah, we, we, you know, I am interested to see um, new writers and, and what they, you know, their ideas, but I'm, but um, I've got to balance that with my capability of reading and being able to kind of, you know, ingest stuff, uh, because um, it, to do it properly, it takes, it takes time. Of course. Um, because, um, so um, we don't, you know, we don't kind of, 
you have an open kind of door um, submission kind of thing where people can just send in manuscripts because um, ultimately it's fairly self-defeating because if people just send in manus manuscripts, I'm probably not going to get to read them because they'll just sit there because I've got a you know, day job, I've got to get books out. Um, but, um, but if, but you know, a short paragraph idea along with, um, we have a, um, a little form we ask people to fill in on our website. It's a kind of um, submission release form. So if you fill this form in, it basically allow, basically it means if you send an idea that we've already got work in another area, you're not, you know, you understand that <laughs> you haven't got the monopoly on ideas basically. Right. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm always keen to, you know, hear, hear new ideas and, and um, see new writers coming on. Um, so, you know, I'm whilst I'm trying to say, please don't just send in manuscripts. I am, I am saying I'm interested to talk to people who are interested to, you know, become published. Um, but I would always preface that by saying, please show it to some other people first. Please show it to your friends and say. Is this a suitable standard for publication? Because if it's not, then you need to go away and do some more work before. before. Um, and if you're not sure what a suitable standard for publication is, you need to open some of our scenarios and read them and compare them to your work. And go like, does my work read like a published scenario? There you go. Because often you're going to write for yourself. And you don't need as many extensive notes yes. for yourself. Right. Right. But yeah. when somebody else is running your idea, you kind of got to tell them what they need to do. Exactly. The, one of the biggest issues I have with um, new writers, uh, they'll send in a send in a, a scenario which is yeah kind of a cool idea. But everyone's got cool ideas. You know, keepers have cool ideas every day of the week. They don't turn them into published scenarios. Um, got a really cool idea, but they haven't explained it on the page, or they've all the stuff that happens when they run the game is in their head still, and it hasn't actually come down their arm through into the keyboard and onto the paper because it's still in their head. So when they say, and I say, I've looked at their scenario, say, well, it, yeah, I can see what happens here, but what what's supposed to go on in this between this scene and this scene? And they go, oh well, in my game, this is what happens. I said, well, that's cool, but you've not written this. You've not written that in the scenario. That's missing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what's in your head. So, um, and and there's nothing wrong with putting your what happened in your game in there, especially if it's backstory. Sure. Stuff that sure. happens. You, you have to kind of explain some of the stuff that happens off the page. Yes. So that people know the motivation of yeah. with NPCs and what's going on. Yeah, you've got you've got to you've got to explain, you know, what what um, what are, what are people's motivations? You know, what what are the NPCs' motivations? Or what are the what are the investigators' motivations as well? Right. Um, why why are they doing this thing? Yeah, and often mm -hmm. I'll get scenarios that are like six pages of backstory, and then then it will, so I've read six pages of this history of this monster and artifact and cult and all this kind of really cool stuff. And then uh, it tells me all that what they've done for a hundred years, and then on um, page seven it will say, "Well, the investigators arrive here now, and all the stuff that's come before it is completely useless because the investigators never learn any of this. This is purely for me 
as a keeper to read that has no relevance in the actual scenario. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas elements of it might be, but actually that you could probably say that on one page rather than six. And you know, make make what you write relevant to the scenario, and what you write in the scenario has got to be relevant to the investigators because that's what they're the people who are going to interact with it. So um, it's you know trying to be concise with your background and making it relevant because otherwise it, it turns into a short story and it's not a scenario. Right. Excellent. Well, Scott, I hope that answers your question. Now I've saved the best. For last, <laughs> actually, I have two more questions. I'll save the best for last. So okay. I'll I'll go with the weaker question. Why did you get rid of the resistance table? <laughs> why Why wouldn't you? Uh, I love the resistance table. What What? But what 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 do you love about it? I love. I actually like the modified resistance table in the in the keeper's companion. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. I love that resistance. I like it because it's you know it's very simple. It's it's a role. I I know it's effectively doing the same thing. As it an is doing role. the same thing. It's not effectively. It is doing the same thing. Yeah. As, uh, as an opposed role. The, the 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 main reason was we didn't need it. It doesn't it doesn't need to be there because as soon as you introduce opposed roles, you don't need a you don't need a table to tell you what to roll. And also, table, sorry. And, and also, you don't need to stop the game while the keeper looks up, gets out the resistance table, or looks on the keeper screen, and is what's your. You don't, you don't need to do that. You just say, "Make a power roll." As I make a power roll, and who won? Okay, you won. Let's move on with the game. There's, there's, I know. I know. It, I, it's just sorry. it's just a hangover from experience. That's all it is. And as soon as you. Let it go. You find you find that you never knew it existed in the first place because it's just unnecessary now. You don't need. And if you're re and if you're really that stuck with it, then fine. <laughs> because the numbers are still on no, the. No, no, don't say that. Don't say that because doors, it will. Doors will be opening using the resistance table. <laughs> and spend your time stopping the game and looking at the table and. Going, you know, eighteen versus fourteen is such. Um, then go for if your game. You, you do what you like with your in your own own group. I, I, I really I really don't mind. But um, for me and uh, everyone else that you know has used it, it's kind of like well, they've forgotten it existed. To be honest, I mean, some people will love love that. Fine, I have My no problem. companion opens up automatically. To <laughs> <laughs> you want to cut it out? Glue it on the seventh edition, you know, paper screen. I still use it. Then, then be my guest. Okay. But um, right. I I've been dressed nice. down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, I had to get that out of the way. You've got to get it out of your system, haven't you? you yes. <laughs> um, okay. The actual real best question is: I saved it for last. Pulp Cthulhu. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, we. Um, we're just putting the finishing touches to it literally this week. Um, I, I spent the last week um, reading reading over and proofing and um, looking at uh, Nick's layout, which is, is Nick's done a fantastic job on the layout. That's uh, Nick Vicario, a member yeah. of the Monday Night Heroes and yeah. an artist. And um, we've got a load of um, 
I, I, and so this was the first time I saw a lot of the uh, art that we had done for the book because Nick did all the artwork um, on that one in terms of commissioning the artist. And so seeing it, I've just kind of seen it all put in place now. Um, and so um, it looks really cool. Uh, but in terms of the, the system itself, um, it is, you know, it is a supplement to the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition rulebook. It's not a rulebook, it's a supplement. Right. Which has rules to play in a cult pulp style, which build on the rules of 7th edition. Um, and, um, <clears throat> go on. A lot of the rules in 7th edition have, well, there's the supplemental rules, the optional rules, that are very pulp-oriented. Yeah, I mean, well, depending depending how you want to portray or play it, they can be pulpy, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily are pulpy. Um, but, um, but what Pulp Cthulhu does is, is use some of those and introduce more um, uh, to actually, you know, very clearly play a very pulp game. Um, and in the um, in the book, there is advice, and there's kind of three levels of pulp. You've got kind of the um, the middle middle level of pulp, which is a kind of default pulp game. Um, but there's advice for lower levels of pulp. So if you want to kind of play pretty much Call of Cthulhu with a few little tweaks and bells and whistles to give the players a little bit more, you know, um, to make the players a little, you know, the characters a little tougher. You can play kind of a low-level pulp, which is nearly indistinguishable from Call of Cthulhu. And then there's advice for playing high pulp, where the uh, characters have um, uh, a lot more kind of abilities and um, uh, you know, a, a way to affect things effectively. So there's advice in it for that. There's the, the character generation system is, 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 diff is similar but different. There's... Uh, New components in the character generation system for pulp talents, uh, pulp archetypes for characters, um, and then uh, there's the rules itself, uh, which, uh, as I say, they, you know, they're, they're basically you know you shoehorn these new rules into your seventh edition rulebook. Effectively, they just build on that very very simply, um, uh, but give you some latitude in terms of both the player, some latitude with the keeper some um, new uh, tricks up their sleeve. Um, and there's uh, advice on you know, running pulp games, designing pulp scenarios, the kind of themes of pulp. Um, and then there's a chapter on um, pulp villains. So there's a whole range of um, pulp NPCs and other kind of craziness. Um, there's some pulp organizations for your player characters to belong to. But there's also evil cabals for the keeper to use. So we kind of like, you know, um, dark organisations that the that the investigators might be pitched against. Um, and um, there's um, rules for psychic powers, weird science, and building powers, gadgets, and jetpacks, and elder sign bullets, and all that kind of stuff. Um, sanity. There's uh, there's um, there's some additions to the sanity mechanics. Um, to kind of play more in a pulp vein, so you have insane augmented skills, which uh, allow all sorts of craziness to happen. Which basically are just inspired out of Herbert West, really. Um, Herbert West takes, is a doctor who takes medicine and mixes it with the mythos. He can then raise the dead, which is an impossibility, but he can do it. And um, so augmented skills 
allow some latitude along those lines to allow to effectively allow Herbert West to kind of exist in a, in a kind of full setting. That's um, awesome. I actually wrote rules for the, the reagent ah, cool. to use yeah, yeah, in yeah. the game because uh, one of our players wanted to be a disciple of West, but then she wasn't <laughs> able to play. Yeah. So I, I had these rules, but now you've rewritten them, so my rules are... Well, you, you could, like, in theory, they, the reagent itself could, could easily fall under weird science as well. That's true. You could easily uh, incorporate that, I would have thought. Um, and then you've got four scenarios at the back, you know, four fairly... Well, um, four re you know, reasonably large scenarios. Um, each of them kind of you know, takes different kind of strands of pulled and pulls them, and and you know, so some are ones a bit more kind of crazy combat orientated, ones are more of a mystery, but um, but all of them play to the kind of classic kind of pulp tropes. You've got some you know crazy villains and um, dark situations that the players find themselves in and uh, have got to deal with really, and the players very much have got to have got to deal with them because there's no one else that's going to deal with them. Um, and so they, they have to kind of take on the mantle of heroes. And in fact, that's that's one of the things to mention. Um, we don't call um, player characters investigators in pulp. We call them heroes because that's what they are. Oh, so, then, so, uh, we will be playing that on Monday Night Heroes because that, that's basically what we try to do <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and it's kind of, you know, you, you, you do end up having a tougher, a tougher hero character in the game. So they can... They can Go toe to toe with some of the bigger mythos creatures. You know, deep ones and gulls won't worry them that much. Um, so um, they can't, but uh, they can take on former spawn and shoggoths and stuff like that. They won't necessarily survive, but they but they have a chance, a far better chance than uh, a standard Call of Cthulhu character would. Excellent. Kim punched a shantak once. I did. <laughs> I, I I later punched a Nyarlathotep. Yeah. <laughs> I had a character that and I survived. I had a player that did that once. Yeah, <laughs> I think <laughs> I allowed it to survive as well. I just thought it was far more funny because I thought, uh, no, well, what, what, what we did taking his time with revenge in some way, so making it far worse than just killing him. So. We had a uh, all the players had some demon artifact from Stormbringer that was to give them. More of a fighting chance against the mythos yes, than yes. irregular. Yeah, yeah. So that, it's the same, effectively the same thing, but you know we had to go dip into another source book. Oh no, that's yeah, that's cool. <laughs> De definitely, uh, definitely uh, not. You know, very much in the pool vein, definitely. Yeah, those have subsequently been removed <laughs> <laughs> for the remainder of the campaign. <laughs> anyway. I want to thank Mike for being here. Yes. Um, anytime you want to come back, if you have stuff you need to plug for Chaosium, feel free. Sure. Well, that's appreciated. Thanks very much. It's been it's been good. Yes. And uh, yeah, uh, happy happy to come back whenever you like. Whenever you, whenever you need me to talk from Waffle on, happy Excellent. to. Do. <laughs> Excellent. We'll, we'll give you a review of Pulp when it comes out, probably. Cool. Cool. Um, let's see. I'm supposed to keep these. Exit things brief. So on Monday we're playing Eclipse Phase. Sorry, I know that's not. It's, not okay. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then um, on Friday we are well. The Friday Fun Guy are playing uh, Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth in the 90s. 
And then we will be back next week for another exciting Microphones of Madness. So everybody out there, say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie.